Welcome, friends and colleagues. As we continue our exploration of the first chapter of Genesis, we will focus on different topics. Instead of going verse by verse, we will now be in a situation where we will talk about certain selected verses which will present important principles and issues in interpretation. And of course, that will also give us an understanding of the first chapter when put together. We mentioned many times that the methodology of this podcast is to understand what it is that the Torah tells us, not what it says. We are not so much interested, although it is essential, in understanding of the words and phrases. We are starting with the viewpoint that there is a message, that there is something important that it's trying to tell us, and it does that by telling a story using specific language, planting attention-grabbing points throughout the narrative, and uh, tagging on our emotions and our need to interpret what we're hearing to deliver a philosophical, a theological message. Instead of just throwing it at us, it leads us to it. In the classical understanding of rhetoric, that is what rhetoric is. Not in its modern sense that it's just words, it's just a way of presenting something that serves your purposes, but in the classical Greek meaning of it, the art of argument, the art of persuasion, the, right, the, the, the art of bringing someone on your side. You could say, with that specific definition of rhetoric, that uh, the Bible is a book of rhetoric because its goal and its aim is to convince us, is to present a way of looking at reality, a way of understanding and thinking about ourselves and the world. And of course it wants us to adapt it, but not through brute insistence, but through a sophisticated presentation of stories, sophisticated and complex use of language and syntax. Among things that it would then do is use our existing perceptions, our suppositions, even perhaps our theological assumptions. At times, it will need to present a contrast between these assumptions, so that we might know what is right. We have in this podcast most so far dealt with ideas that are drawn and that we know from ancient and medieval and modern philosophy and theology. We looked at some of these ideas and we said, we asked ourselves, what does the Bible have to say about that? And then we would find that it addresses these ideas. But I think it would be a mistake in that framework to focus solely on the ideas of antiquity, Middle Ages, and modernity, simply because we know them better, because they have been put out and enunciated in a clearer language. 
We have to remember that the Torah was given to people who lived in a Near Eastern context where there was certain ways of thinking about the world, there were prevalent religions, and that is also what the Torah, which is for all ages, but given to that generation, would need to oppose it. Um, it is a well-known fact that much of the realia, the, the context of Genesis, is Near Eastern, which in itself is an argument against it being written in a later age. Because who, who in the Persian era, for example, would know that the law of Hammurabi allows a barren wife to give her maidservant to her husband and the child would be called on her name, her child, unless she chooses to drive away that woman and her child. Nobody in the Persian era would know that. There are many, many, many um, echoes of the surrounding times in Genesis, uh, arguing, of course, for its great antiquity. But back to the world of ideas. We find many times, as pointed out by modern scholarship, that the Torah talks and has in mind and hints and alludes to prevailing ideas in order to negate them. So it might, uh, just like we would do in our own times, <clears throat> make, make reference to popular ideas like democracy and uh, justice, uh, uh, sharing of burden, and uh, give its own perspective through story through characterization, through phrasing. It would not be surprising then that there are many examples when, when the Bible uh, uses a similar language but changes it subtly or sometimes not so subtly in concordance and in, 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 in the direction of its moral and theological ideas. I'll list a few examples like that. Exodus 20, 19 to 23, 19, the presentation of various laws, uh, harkens back and, and, and is essentially in a conversation with the Code of Hammurabi that is much older than it is, by, by about a thousand years or so, a little more um, older. But even when it presents similar laws, or stretches of different laws that seem to parallel even the arrangement in the Code of Hammurabi. There's very clear difference in emphasis. The Hammurabi's Code is interesting in social stability. It provides different punishment for different classes of people. Obviously, the weak and the powerless will get punished more severely. There is vicarious punishment if uh, a house that an architect built collapsed and killed uh, children of a family, the architect's children would be killed. No such thing. Clearly very unjust punishment in the Torah of Moses. Punishments are excessive. Um, the Torah presents 
the same laws, but they're different. There is a concern for justice mixed with mercy. There are hints that the Rex Talonis eye for the eye is not to be taken literally. We spoke about it once before. The language itself uh, kind of tells us, well, we, I have to use this term because that's the prevalent legal term, an eye for an eye. It's used by the Code of Hammurabi, but that's not what I mean by it. It's different. It it should be given. Uh, the the penalty should be assessed. It should be monetary. You don't put out the other person's eye. Um, this is for another time again, but we have spoken about it. And um, the goals is justice, morality, and fairness. And it's a very clear distinction to call it Hammurabi. Another example, the flood story, the story of Noah, as is well known. There is the Gilgamesh epic. It also predates. Um, <clears throat> but the way it is told is quite different. In Gilgamesh's epic, the gods just were bothered by the excessive noise of humankind and they decided to wipe out humanity for some reason, not because of his righteousness. Gilgamesh was told to build a boat and he survived and humanity was rebuilt by him. And then he brought sacrifices because the gods got quite hungry. They apparently didn't think through that there'll be no sacrifices and no food if they destroy humanity. And now everything is back to normal. Very different story of the flood. Noah was a righteous man. <coughs> the context is that of uh, immense uh, brutality, violence, and immorality among the humans. And uh, the story of sacrifices is as well presented quite differently. Or... Well, I'll mention, by the way, that there is archaeological evidence for flood in the Mediterranean area. Actually, two. Uh, one, they date to about 2,000 years before uh, how we would date uh, Noah's story, um, which was a local flood all the way up to Turkey. Uh, then there was another flood, but they claim 20,000 years previously, when the Mediterranean basin, which was a fertile, uh, lush area, um, became flooded, apparently some mountain ridge that was blocking it from the ocean. As you know, the Mediterranean is very narrow at the point where it meets the Atlantic Ocean. It broke and it was flooded. And and that's, uh, that's a, a question about the flood. You know, was it a local flood, even in the tourist presentation, or was, was it a worldwide flood? Again, something else to discuss. Um, but uh, the story of the flood is very common. There are more than 200 various versions of it throughout the world, from Lithuania to the American Indians. Uh, so that's obviously some event that made its impression. Um, they usually countered by quoting, bringing, referencing Jungian psychology, saying it's an archetype, uh, but the wide prevalence of the stories about the flood has a great meaning. Uh, you judge. Uh, another example would be <coughs> the mention in Genesis 1.21 of two great serpents. That is an oblique way of 
contrasting and arguing against the common Babylonian epic of creation. There was a serpent called Timnat, and Marduk, the chief of the gods, slaughtered it because it was an opponent. There was a war, a fight. There are some references to that in other biblical passages, oblique references. And uh, he divided it into two. And from one half he made the earth, from the other half he made the heaven. Okay, so we have instead two great serpents who were created by God. Not gods, not independent powers. And there were two of them, male and female. If anyone wants to research more about that, uh, you can find in Kasuta from Adam to Noah, page 32. Today, I would like to focus on the two great luminaries, the sun and the moon, and just try to understand that mysterious passage. Let me read it for you and make some points. <coughs> Genesis 1.14, reading the Eitzchayim translation, which is pretty good. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night. They shall serve as signs for the set times, the days and the years, and they shall serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to shine upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light, bigger light, to dominate the day and the lesser light to dominate the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the skies to shine about the earth, to dominate the day and the night and to separate Light from darkness. Notice that the word limshol in the original Hebrew, which means to rule, this translation translates as dominate, which has a purpose. And God saw this, in, that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. The sages have an interesting comment about this. It is found in the Talmud Chulin, 60b. The moon said before the Holy One, blessed be he, Master of the world, is it possible for two kings to use the same crown? I would um, call your attention to the terminology of one crown, because that indicates to us that this is a ceremonial post, not the post of true power and true rulership, kind of a constitutional monarchy, with the title, but no power. So he answered to her, God answered, go and make yourself small. He saw that uh, the moon wasn't happy about it, so the Holy One, blessed be said, bring atonement for me. Have you kapora alai? For that I made small the moon. And this is what Rish Lakish said, one of the Talmudic sages. Uh, why is it that the sacrifice of the goat of the new moon day, Rosh Chodesh, that it says, for Hashem, for God? It never, uh, in no other places does it say that it is a sacrifice to God. So God said, this goat should be atonement for me, for that I made the moon small. 
And and uh, this is also brought in chapter Shavuos uh, 9a. And um, by Rashi in his commentary. Rashi also adds that because the moon was minimized, its hosts were enlarged. And that's why you see the stars. A very mysterious passage. Already the medieval commentaries had a theological problem with this. So, for example, in the tractate Shavuos, the reef changes bring atonement for me, a lie, to a lie, bring atonement to me. And uh, Rabbeinu Bachia in Numbers 28.16 writes that that was done on purpose, that it it is... uh, it is to say that it was for me, uh, to me instead of for me, and uh, the commentary caught safe and the Ein Yaakov in that same place in Shavuos nine writes in the name of Rajbo that uh, the word Alai should be understood as Eli. The uh, the Aleph of Eli can be exchanged for the Ayin of Alai. In, in the rules of language. Uh, the Ritvo Day in Shavuos makes a point that atonement could imply true atonement, or it could imply that, forgive me please, uh, language of peace, of pacification. The moon should be pacified with the decision. <coughs> uh, there is, however, a passage in Baratius Rabbah, 6.3, that expands this Talmudic story and explains that the punishment of the moon, the reason it became smaller, because it argued against the sun and it expected the sun to become smaller, not itself. Two kings cannot use the same crown, so go and make my opponent smaller. And for this reason, it itself became smaller. Okay, very mysterious uh, and clear uh, story. Obviously an important story because it's repeated in three sources. But the theological problem with God bringing sacrifice to as an atonement for himself is unusual. Is unusual. Now we do have uh, in other places that, uh, that God expresses regret for consequences of his action. That should be understood as, I'm so sorry that I had to do it, it was the correct decision, but um, I regret that it was needed. That's that's a very common emotion and an understandable one. I'll give you two examples. Um, in Baruchus on page 7, when Rabbi Yossi went into a ruin, he heard the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, wailing and saying, oh, oh, woe is to me, that because of the sins of my children, by the way, the words but the sins of my children is an interpolation um, by Christian censors for theological reasons. It's not found in uh, 
Talmudic manuscripts from the Islamic world or in the early manuscripts. But nevertheless, he says that <coughs> I, um, for, for, for I destroyed my house, God is speaking, uh, and uh, drove my children to the exile among the nations. Another example, a Mishnah in Sanhedrin, uh, talking about when a criminal who had a death penalty applied is then for the remainder of the day uh, hung, displayed to the public. And what does the Shekhinah, what does the Divine Presence say? Uh, it says, oh, my head is hurting, my arms are hurting. So again, it's regrettable. I feel for for this divine image, uh, a human being who is hung and in this way humiliated. It was necessary, but it hurts me. So you can certainly see this uh, passage as expressing this same idea. But if we go back and look at the passage altogether, we think can realize something else. And that is that there is a prevalent pagan idea that the sun and the moon are gods. And that they are gods means that they also rule. They have independent power. Uh, this passage in Genesis, representing to us ceremonial aspect of rulership, takes away from that idea. It contrasts it and contradicts it without saying so explicitly. And the sages pick up on that concept. So what does the sun and the moon do? They rule in the day and night. They have very circumscribed locations. As the sages say, it's about the crown. The sun wears the crown at night. The moon wears it at day. What a day. They are reduced to being objects by which we count times. Uh, the uh, rulership is, uh, appears to be not uh, truly active or independent. They got servants, as Hiskuni explains. Uh, the rulership means that they affect the growth of produce uh, on the earth. And we might add things like tides of the moon and the like. Their servants, they're kind of like a clerk in the town office who can... Um, follow the rules and fill out papers, but truly doesn't have independent power. <coughs> the sages, when they talk about atonement, they're saying that God regrets that because of the prevalence of pagan ideas, he had to make the moon small. Uh, the I would say as an, as, as, as an aside that the whole concept of the moon being killed is fairly common. For example, in, in Lithuanian mythology, the sun married the moon, but the moon couldn't stay faithful. Therefore, Perkunas, the thunder god, broke it apart and put it at night so it shouldn't meet uh, his previous spouse, and the little pieces became the stars and the moon is therefore at night 
it's exactly such, and many, many, there are many, many uh, uh, myths uh, in ver- among various peoples about the sun and the moon and why the moon is at night, etc. This were the part of pagan uh, ideology where the sun and the moon were gods and they had independent powers. So what I'm saying is that here's another example where <clears throat> the phrasing and the presentation of the story of the sun and the moon uh, is coming to take away, to oppose and limit and redefine uh, pagan ideas of the times. It's kind of um, it's kind of a thing that we we see frequently in politics these days. You acknowledge the other person's ideas, but you restate them in a way that takes away the substance of those ideas. Uh, give you an example: Dubček's in Czechoslovakia, uh, socialism with a human face. Well, what he's saying is he's saying the important word socialism, but he's defining it as being with a human face, which makes it not the kind of communistic socialism that was around at the time. Or, i give you an example, uh, the word justice could mean different things to different people. Uh, justice could mean redressing past inequities. Justice could mean law and order. So you might have a law and order candidate say, yes, we are for justice, but he means law and order. This way, by saying the same word, is substituting the meaning. So I think that's what that's a part of rhetoric, and that's what we see in this passage. I want to just to acknowledge that the methodology does not, in any way, does not say that all this is his rhetoric. It does not bear on historicity of the events in the Bible, and doesn't say anything about their quote truth. What it is is a tool to understand mysterious passages, unclear statements, when we can understand them as negating a certain prevalent idea at the time, then we understand the Torah in a deeper sense. I'll add just one more little thing and marvel at the wisdom of uh, the Torah. Because you know, when, when it says that there were two big luminaries, and immediately it says, the big one to serve in the night, and the small one to serve a rule, uh, limshol, in the day, I'm sorry, in the, 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 large, the large one uh, to rule in the day, and the small one to rule in the night, it knows something that an average person would not know in antiquity. And that is that the moon is much smaller than the south, than the, than the sun. So, to us, in the sky, the moon and the sun appear to be the same size. This is a very curious um, phenomenon, because it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, it was done that way on purpose. But the sun is about 400 times bigger than the moon. But the moon is about 400 times closer to the earth than the sun. So the disk of the sun and the disk of the moon would actually appear to us to be of the same size. Yet the Torah knew that one is bigger and one is smaller. That is a remarkable fact that bears noting. Very well, we've gone a little bit over time. Thank you for listening. And may you have only 
Blessings.